and Matt Show, the disc golf podcast you've been looking for. Welcome to episode eight, everybody. Wow. Two months, Nick. We have been doing the show officially for two months. What do you think about that? That's a... It's a pretty cool feeling. It's weird not being in the studio right now. Like I don't have my screen set up like I'd like to. I can't see how many people are watching or comments or anything like that. So it's a little awkward, but I'm excited to be on for week number eight with you, Matt. This has been an awesome ride so far. And uh, let's keep it going. We got some cool things to talk about tonight. Yeah. So you said you're remote. Do you mind disclosing your bomb shelter or are you not doing dynamite stuff? Not doing dynamite stuff right now. I took this week off. I actually drove down to Virginia on Monday night. I got here Tuesday morning. And uh, I'm actually at Hunter Thomas's house right now, guy, Foundation Disc Golf, and because he has better internet than Paul does. But I've been staying at Paul's house the last couple of days, Paul and Hannah's for uh, Paul's birthday that's coming up. Yes. Yeah, so, it's actually today. Yeah, yeah, it's today. Yeah. So to our, oh, yeah, to Paul, Paul's birthday. Happy birthday, Paul. Yeah. Happy birthday, Paul. Yeah. Um, one day we'll have him on the show. We're just going to, you know, tease it out there for about a year. So yeah. people just keep subscribing. By the way, our subscriber count keeps going up, which we are obviously, it's super motivating and encouraging. Um, let me just really quickly, while I'm here in the very beginning portion of the show, Nick, I came up with the winner for that birdie game, but I have, I don't think there was a way to contact them because YouTube, oh, it didn't okay. give me that option or whatever. Facebook, I couldn't find them. So yep. I'm going to read it out loud. Anybody knows Brandon Samp. That's S-A-M-P. He is the winner of the birdie game. Brandon Samp. Um, He was the 47th subscriber to our channel, and that was what Nate Heinold last week chose. So congratulations to him. But the first uh, live comment that came up for this show recording, Nick, was, uh, and you have good internet? (laughs) So you feel good about the internet, not at Paul's, but over at Hunter's. Yeah, Hunter, Hunter's is pretty good. It's uh, nothing like you got back back in Massachusetts, but um, it should hopefully be decent enough. And yeah, hopefully the quality is still good for everyone. Oh, it's great. So for those who are just now joining, here's the topics tonight. We're going to talk about PDGA ratings. Now, there's a mixed uh, bag of opinions on this, and some people say it's the most confusing thing they've ever heard. Some people say it's the most boring thing because they've just given up on them. Um, and they're focusing just on playing disc golf, um, but PDGA ratings. And um, we're also going to talk about Nick. What Did you watch the Preserve Championship? I did. I watched every single live round, and I've watched most of the post-round production. Okay, so that's, by the way, they hit a new benchmark for um, most live viewers again at 16,900 okay. and something. So, like, it bumped Insane. a little more. Yeah. Um, but I was asking about that because – what did you think of the course out there? It it looks really fun to play. If you have a big arm, that obviously definitely helps. Um, it's obviously super spectator friendly, and it created an epic battle up until the last hole of the tournament. So that was great, but I don't know. It seems soft to me. Just the 41 down winning a tournament in three days, that's pretty insane. That's what, 54 holes? So multiple people, multiple people shot better than 16 under that. That must tell you something. No, it's insane. It's It's like a new memorial. (laughs) It's it's an open air course. And I guess that's kind of the terminology like people are giving to it. And um, I think it used to be a golf course, maybe transitioning. I don't know the full story there. Yeah. Yep. It is. Or excuse me. It was. So I do know that uh, Cam 
can't, uh, why am I having a brain freeze? Kale. Kale. Sorry. Kale. I mean, literally had a brain freeze. If you look at my face and rewind it, you'll be like, what just happened? Like robot freeze. So yeah, Kale said like, Hey, I was planning this with no OB, like no unnatural artificial OB and just like have fun. No restrictions go. I know that Simon commented on that. And he says he made an official post like recently, like how amazing it is, how it like everything yeah. should be this way. And then I think of Maple Hill. Now I know that's an exception, but we're going to talk about the topic of open air courses and um, out of bounds, artificial, all that kind of stuff. We've got a special yep. guest and it's not going to be you and me just sharing our opinions on this. We brought in somebody um, who actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to the hardest topic in disc golf. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, he's been around yeah. a while in the sport. We're going to bring him on. You guys already see it in the title of our show, but we're going to bring in Chuck Kennedy, um, formerly, or, or, or if I was being formal, Charles Kennedy. We'll, we'll, we'll bring in Chuck here to talk about yeah. uh, ratings, and then we'll jump into Judge That Disc Golfer. By the way, Nick, there were people that went out of their way to let us know that they were bothered that Judge That Disc Golfer didn't happen last week. You know, we thought we'd try to switch things up a little bit and seeing as the comments were people being bothered that it wasn't on there, then we'll have to just, we'll keep rolling with it. It seems like it's a pretty fun thing for the people to be entertained with and join along. So we love doing it. Let's keep it. Yeah. Let's keep it rolling. We'll keep it rolling. And um, yeah. some people were like, oh, it's definitely better than would you rather episode or segment. And I'm like, yeah, I can see how that is. We're involving I, an outside yeah. person, you know? Yeah, and I think the would you rather, if we came up with some pretty good, like, realistic, like, you know, would you rather win Worlds or USDGC? Like, cool questions like that, or, you know, I don't know. We can't burn some, out. We can't burn out the same questions is what you're saying. So if exactly, you guys have good yeah. questions that we could ask disc golfers that you think could be something we could play a game off of, it shouldn't just be a would you rather. We want to kind of gauge maybe a little bit more fun, like so, like how far do you throw? Like, that's a really large question, but like something along those lines that's creative. We'd love to hear your input. Thank you guys again for subscribing. Nick, uh, you're giving away a what when we get to 1,000? So 1,000 followers. I'm going to be giving away one of my nice, swirly, old Proto Kongs, the Proto Zeus's when they first came out. Mm -hmm. um, pretty sweet. I've got some really, really pretty ones back at the house, and so that's going to be one of the first things we give away in the 1,000 subscriber giveaway. Now, wait a second. Are you? St uh, you don't have to disclose your bedroom location, but are you staying down there in the vicinity of Paul Macbeth? Maybe. At, well, yes. I'm staying there throughout <laughs> the week. Yeah, until Maybe. Sunday, but right now I'm at... Right now, I'm at Hunter's. Maybe when everybody's gone to sleep at the Macbeth house, you can just tiptoe out down to their little training facility. No, I'm not no. encouraging theft. I'm not encouraging theft. But, like, something good. You just be like, Paul, can you give something away for our 1,000 subscriber? Maybe he will. So... Yeah, I'll, I'll hit him up later about it. I, I'll see him in a couple hours. So. It's his birthday. We, we should be giving to him, not taking. He's given a lot. Yeah, so. no kidding. Awesome. Okay, so we've I, got... I, I give him my money when I sign up for a pro tour event, <laughs> so he, he's good. That's perfect. So Chuck Kennedy, we're going to go ahead and bring him on. Let's do that now. Welcome to the show, Mr. Kennedy. Is it okay if I call you Chuck? Hey, hey, hey. Chuck, Chuck is fine. Is fine. Right. Uh, a lot of the locals call me CK34 over the years. That was my original AOL account back in the 90s. 
and, and March, March 4th is my birthday. So that's where the CK34 comes around. So that's what's marked on my discs even. Wow. Alrighty. Awesome. <laughs> and, and so to the, the viewers and listeners, you might've just had a slight echo on Chuck. We fixed it there. That was a quick fix. And last week I, I had a conversation with my kids. Do not touch the sound mixing board. <laughs> <laughs> so we, yeah. we fixed our problems, but so let me get this straight and you can, you can fill in anything I might've missed here, but you've been a member of the PDGA and since 1989 how long have you been playing disc golf uh <clears throat> i pretty much uh started at that point uh i was a frisbee thrower back in the 60s when the international frisbee association was created by steady ed and i i can't find my member card but i think uh, he told me that the number i had was from around 1967 so at that point, I was throwing Frisbees and, and doing skill tests and whatever that were part of that. And uh, that was done. I played catch Frisbee, you know, at picnics and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But until 1989 is when I started disc golf. Wow. Okay. Nice. So you have a number that's less than 5,000. So 4949. Yeah. Nick, what's your? Yeah, 4949. And actually, <clears throat> I earned that um, that number from Joe Fight, who's currently the editor of the Disc Golfer magazine for the PDGA. He was also editor of the PDGA newsletter called the Disc Golfer at that time. And I did some charts. Uh, in fact, um, using some of the charts and graphs from the course directory, that showed the density of players per course or course density per players in uh, different states. Uh, UDIS just published something like that. You guys might have caught that. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I did that manually by hand going through the paper directory. And um, for that work that I did, Joe bought my PDJ membership. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh. And I got 4949. Oh, I get it. Yeah. So you earned it. That's that's totally cool. That's very unique. Um, Nick, what's your PDGA number? Eight, two, nine, three, five. Okay. So he's still less a than little, a little bit higher. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I'm less than a hundred thousand. That's actually, yeah, a I just got it. I just got a cool number for my girlfriend um, right before the PDJ got to a hundred thousand and she has nine, nine, eight, nine, nine. So we were going for the last yeah. palindrome we could get <laughs> that's totally that's awesome yeah that's totally that's a sweet number too <laughs> that's a that's a geek thing right <clears throat> yes yes totally and um we're gonna find out more about you maybe that's the kind of thing you like we'd like to know more um can i just quickly to anybody who's just joined us um live for the recording would you do a quick share a like uh some emoji or something to create engagement to let more people see this chuck's going to share some really insightful um knowledge about uh ratings and um we're going to talk about course uh course play and what that looks like nowadays with simon's recent comments about open air style courses um am i correct in saying that you've designed more than 50 disc golf courses yeah it's over 100 oh and <clears throat> the um yeah yeah, it, it, it put it this way, over 100 when not necessarily solo designs, a lot of times I always had some assistant or somebody that was like a, an editor, if you will, that uh, <clears throat> would be along with me when, when I would be like the lead designer. But uh, and I did a lot of the chainsaw work myself in the 90s when we built the courses here in the Twin Cities. Okay. And <clears throat> I don't know if people 
we're aware that at least for a while, um, the PDJ was sending out people like myself to vet the courses prior to uh, Worlds. Wow. And so I would go out and work with the local hosts on tweaking their courses, try to make them a little bit tougher for the uh, players and get the distances better for the, you know, the gold level players that were going to yep. be the top players. Gotcha. Cool. Totally. And uh, yeah, go ahead, Matt. No, no, I don't want to cut you off. You're up, man. No, no, no. I was just saying, so kind of like going down the list we got, you're the father of the PDGA rating system. You invented it and you created it to be what it is. And I'm sure there's a billion questions that we could ask you about the rating system. And we're going to try to get through a ton of it tonight. But how did like, what was kind of your mentality in creating the rating system itself? <clears throat> well, there's a, you know, if people can abide a little bit of a background, uh, I've got a chemical engineering degree and an MBA, worked in the Fortune 500. A sport that I did in the 80s prior to disc golf was orienteering, which is running in the woods with a map and a compass using mm -hmm. terrain maps. So it was natural for me to get into course design uh, when I got in, into the sport. In fact, I, I don't know, I might have the record for the fastest being in the sport and putting in a course. I, I first threw my, my, threw my first disc in April 89. Yeah. And, and the course that's still in the ground called the Valley here in Invergrove Heights, where I still live, uh, was in the ground by Labor Day. So from April to Labor Day, I got in the sport, learned how to play. Steady Ed actually came to help me work with the course design and we had the championship course in the ground by September. Wow. They move, move quickly so on I, those kinds of so things. I had, yeah, so I, I was, yeah. uh, you know, immersed in the sport uh, pretty quickly. And I was already 36 at the time. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have the uh, playing history that some of my contemporaries, for example, uh, Dave Greenwell is about a week or so older than me. And of course, for those who know, you know, Dave Greenwell has been around back in the 70s, you know, doing yeah. various disc, disc sports and whatever. And, and you know, we're friends and he's now, you know, involved with uh, Prodigy. Yep. But, uh, you know, a lot of people think I've been around a long time and I have probably relative to the people that just joined three years ago. But yeah. uh, I'm, I'm sort of a, a new old guy. Gotcha. <laughs> a new old guy. Well, you're also yeah. a disc golf hall of famer. And that was the class of 2006, if I'm correct. So 14 that's, years that's... ago. Um, what was that like? Well, that was a great honor. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, which of course you've, uh, you know, advertised, want to talk about ratings, but um, I've done a lot more things in the sport in different areas that, than just the ratings. And, and to some extent, 2006 was barely after we really got the ratings underway for the PDGA. Um, a lot of probably my efforts related to the Hall of Fame had to do with uh, developing the sport and competition in Minnesota and all of the course development that I had done up to that particular point in time. And to segue towards the ratings, my interest in the ratings was more about figuring out a way of determining course ratings, not so much player ratings. Yep. To this, to this day, 
you know, I, I know about player ratings, but I'm I'm more fascinated by how the player ratings uh, are a technique for determining how challenging courses are. The courses could be okay. So that makes yeah, that thing, makes sense. The other thing too is that I was involved with the uh, running the competition for the Minnesota Summer Series, which is one of the oldest uh, competition series out there. Um, and one of the challenges back in in the 90s is the fact that there wasn't any way of really knowing what your skill level was. And so we would have Amateur 1, Amateur 2, Amateur 3 were the names of the divisions, but an AM2 in North Carolina was probably better than an AM2 in sort of a, a state that was just developing. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, when people started traveling more to play for tournaments, um, it was all over the map. And obviously, sandbagging was rampant, even though people weren't necessarily sandbagging, they just didn't know better. Yeah. You know, in other words, it's like they showed up and it's like, you know, or you'd have like the um, the guy who'd been playing for a while on the local course and just had that local course down, mm -hmm. you know, he's a, you know, you think he's a newbie when he comes out there and he torches everybody, you know, because <laughs> that tournament happened to be on his home course. Yeah. Yeah. So what, um, what really happened, and I think uh, a person who hasn't gotten the credit that's due and he's really the man behind the curtain with the ratings is my equal partner, Roger Smith. And I don't even know if you guys know him. Nope. You, I'll be honest. I don't. Yeah. And Chuck, yeah. you're, Roger, you're going to, Smith. you're going to yeah. drop some okay. names tonight. I'm sure you already have a few, honestly, that I'm not familiar with. And I'll apologize okay. for that up front. And, and I think a lot of people will know if they're a student of the game and I try to be, but feel free to speak about anybody that you want to throw out there and say that they deserve a, a, a you know, the limelight. So go ahead. Yeah. <clears throat> well, here's, Here's sort of how, it, without Roger, we wouldn't have the rating system. Interesting. Uh, uh, I was the one who came up with the formulas and calculations, but Roger still works as a senior analyst for the city of Chicago water system. Okay. And so he's, um, you know, a top level, top level database computer guy. And at the time that I had this idea, it actually came about because Jim Chalice, who was our executive director of the PDJ at the time, he's from Minnesota. He knew about my um, handicap uh, league system that I had developed in Minnesota. And he said, you know, we need to get a handicapping system for the PDJ. And I said, you know, um, our experience is that players would, they sort of have sort of a, a distaste for having scores being adjusted, at least for tournament competition. It's fun for, yes. for league, league level. And I said, I, I really don't think that's gonna you know, go over that well. I said, what I think would work is people wanna play against people of a similar skill level that they're at, at a particular point in time. You know, that was obviously why we had M1, M2 and M3. We just didn't have a way of determining who those people were. So at the at the time, Jim sent me um, uh, a communication from the statistics committee, which um, Rob Hauer was in charge of. He was a fellow from uh, 
the Ann Arbor Club. And Roger was on that committee talking about using handicap type stats as a way of calculating courses. And, and I took a look at that and I said, you know, I, I wonder if there's a way we can bounce back and forth between players with ratings that generate a course rating. And then from that course rating, it generates what your player rating was in that particular event. We had no, no clue at all whether that was going to be possible. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the qu common questions is, uh, you know, why not do it like, like ball golf? Mm -hmm. And we were thinking, well, maybe we should figure out how to do it like ball golf. I was a ball golfer. <clears throat> I was familiar with uh, handicapping in ball golf. I didn't have a handicap, but um, I was also familiar with, uh, I was a competitive chess player in high school. I won the Toledo City Championship and our high school won the championship <laughs> I'm, way back in 1971. I'm so glad you're on our show, Chuck. Like I, I'm seriously overwhelmed right now with like just feeling like, this is awesome. So keep going, share what you got. So yeah. you're a chess champion. Yeah. And then yeah. So, so I was familiar with the uh, chess rating system. I was captain of the team and, you know, was really into the stats and how that worked. And in a way that was sort of, um, maybe there's a way of, you know, cause basically in, in chess, the ratings of the players that you play and your result against them determines your new rating. So, you know, it was like, geez, can we can we do that, you know, for disc golf? You know, the trick is that where when you're playing match play against somebody in chess, uh, you're you're always playing on the same venue. You know, it's a 64 yep. square board. With golf and disc golf, you have a course and no courses alike. There's no standards. There's nothing. There's yeah. nothing consistent about it. So what we had to do is come up with a mechanism to essentially use ratings of players to create a course rating, which is an intermediate step, and then produce the player ratings for that round, you know, from that from that number. And so uh, that was that was an interesting challenge and you know it uh had to fall back on my math skills and and do some what ifing and testing the formulas and testing them out and uh they got me together with Roger yep. once they uh when I say they uh Brian Honiger was our um administrator at the time and he thought this was a cool idea so he got us together and Roger and I clicked and we started doing experimenting with the data back in 98, 99. And of course, now here's the interesting thing. Our intent was to gather data. And after we had enough data, we would establish the course rating, just mm -hmm. like ball golf, right? And yet you started taking a look at it. And in, in ball golf, you have a situation where you have relatively the same course uh, from from day to day. You know they typically don't play in the winter, and the only thing that changes is the position of the pins on the green, mm -hmm. primarily. Uh, of course, you know you have 
dry grass and all these other kind of things. But in case of disc golf, we had courses ranging from 3,000 feet up to eventually seven, eight, nine, ten thousand feet. Not at that point in time, but still, you know, courses that were like double the length, you know, of yeah. your shortest course. And it's like, yeah. wow, yeah. How, how can you come up with factors? And if you think about it, problem is, where do you start? <laughs> like, you know, people say, well, why don't you just use length? Well, what does what does that mean? Three thousand feet is is this number. Does that mean 4,000 feet would be this number? Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Who, who knows? In other words, wh where, where do you start? Where, where do you get your reference point? So what we did is we used the data from the 1998 Cincinnati Pro Worlds. We figured, well, we'd start with the best players in, in the world. And we just arbitrarily said, we're going to take the average of the 100 best scores thrown on each of the four courses. And whatever that average was, was going to be the SSA. The, cor the course's rating. Course's rating. Okay. And then um, you just, the thing is, it doesn't really matter where you start. It's as long as you can uh, stay consistent from that. So basically, we we created our zero point calculation from that particular point and assigned those numbers a thousand rating. Now that was an interesting thing. If you think about handicaps in in ball golf, you know your scratch player has a zero handicap essentially. And I thought I thought it would be kind of cool thinking about baseball stats is, you know, batting a thousand would be, would be cool. So what I decided to do is uh, transform the numbers so that a thousand would be our world-class number. And if you shot more than a thousand, you'd be a world-class player Yep. yep. And, or average more than a thousand. And if you were less than that, it would be something you'd strive for. So that was a, that was a marketing thing, but, you know, it required a little bit of math skills to, you know, do the transformation for that. But I think that was a good call. I mean, you know, we see now how, yeah. how excited people are. And, uh, you know, that four-digit number, that, that's like a magical thing, you know, <laughs> for a lot of people to, to shoot for. So um, that was just, you know, like I said, that wasn't a math decision. That was like, a, I think that would be cool. So um, we took that data and... We basically propagated right now your your rating. If you have a player rating, it can be um, almost like a genealogy chart. Your rating can be traced all the way back to the 300 people that played in that Cincinnati 98 Worlds. Mm -hmm. So we have continuity in our system, you know, where the numbers go back and forth between ratings to course rating to rating to rating to course rating all that that loop has stayed consistent all the way through so it took a while it's a little bit like you know how um you know the person who bought the first fax machine couldn't really use it because who did he <laughs> no, who would he send it yeah to? Right. there's there's no one to fax anything too right and so you know it's the benefit of networking 
you know, where a lot of people need to have numbers in order to generate even more numbers and then it gets exponential. So basically what we did is we we did retro numbers and we said, okay, these people at the world's had these numbers and we used those numbers to generate ratings in the major events, uh, not just major events, actually any PDJ event that was that had data. And remember back at that time, it was all manual sheets. You know, we were getting pieces of paper that had numbers scribbled on it, whatever. There was no Excel spreadsheet. And so um, there was a lot of grunt work back in those early years getting numbers in. But, you know, those people at Worlds played in those events. And so we had enough propagators to be able to generate ratings for more people. And then those people generated. And, you know, after a while, we had a had a fair sized database and it and of course, the database only gets better. Wow! So, so that's that's so, kind of the early early times. Why don't you guys jump in with some some questions here? Yeah, yeah. So, yes. Nick, I don't know if your volume's yeah. up on your side a little loud, but I'm getting a little echo from computer a little speakers. Echo. It's 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 on someone's side, but that's okay. Just talk closer to it if you can, Nick. Um, but yeah. So yeah, yeah. no, that's fine. So. Chuck, you mentioned like it's a genealogy that can be tracked back. And I think I take your point to say that it continues to get better because it's all part of the original setup or stage. It's all part of that. It's never getting wiped clean. It's continually getting better. Is that what you're saying? Like our ratings today? Well, what I mean, better from the standpoint that um, the there there's more data, yes. more data is better in that regard. And I think, you know, uh, carrying it further, um, Brian Honiger, who was our, uh, again, he was our executive at that particular point in time. Um, he has also been our international liaison for the PDGA, speaks a few languages. He's still uh, in that position for the PDGA. Um, he, if, if you ask him, he'll say that the ratings was the number one thing that broke open the um, interest internationally in becoming members of the PDGA because they wanted to compare their ratings with Climo. You know, they wanted to compare it with Barry Schultz. They wanted to compare it with the U.S. players, which you know was the dominant uh, database uh, in the in the world at the time. And so, um, I you know I feel good about that was that was one of the things that was a a, a big contribution was the fact that we brought the world together, and and for comparison, um, in ball golf, uh, they have the USGA is the American system, the Royal and Ancients is the British system, and I think there was a European system and maybe an Asian system, all that did handicapping and things differently. Uh, just recently, if you uh, follow this, they have gotten together and are trying to consolidate their information, and they're actually moving towards what we're already been doing for over 20 years. Wow! So you know to bring to bring their numbers together. Wow! Yeah. So Chuck, am I incorrect when I say that? Most of the questions that get asked, and I'm not trying to have you pin, you know, bad guy on anybody, but most of the questions you get asked seem to be revolving around the idea that there's a flaw with the system and I have found it. Um, it's the idea that 
that's not accurate and here's why. And let me ask you the question and try to catch you and say, look, that's the flaw. Does that happen? And is does that happen a lot? I see you tagged all over social media. Chuck, answer this question. Why is my rating so poor? It seems like that's why where people are coming from, uh, in my perspective. What's your experience? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the one of the things that is hard for people to grasp is the fact that the course is literally different minute to minute. Mm -hmm. Not only that, the people playing the course are landing in different positions the next round that they play. And so the more number of people that you have, which we call propagators, uh, and those are players with established ratings uh, based on at least eight rounds, mm -hmm. um, the propagators are not only landing in different places, but <clears throat> if um, if you actually started thinking about all the different things that might be different from four, one, four hours later, here's one of the ones that uh, I like to, um, to use to be a little bit sassy, is uh, was the sun in the same position in the afternoon when they say the course is identical. Yeah. And you know that sounds like a flip remark, but the thing about it is lighting and shading has a big effect on your depth perception mm -hmm. <clears throat> and how you see things, especially in you know partially or or mostly wooded courses. We've probably all seen the situation, the real cool effect where the sunbeam, you know, kind of pokes through the clouds or the the tree canopy and the baskets lit up. I mean, that's mm -hmm. like one of the coolest things See it on a disc golf course, yeah. And and here's the here's the thing. If you think about it, you don't consciously make your throws. Your <laughs> lizard brain, your lizard brain and your practice actually makes the throw. So if you're fooled visually, you might say, I know that that's 250. But your lizard brain that goes through and does the mechanics, I mean, you you know that you get screwed up if you actually say, all right, I'm going to try to throw it exactly 76%, you mm -hmm. know, and aim right at that particular point. You know, that's not how it works. You know, you've practiced the hole and, you know, you get in position and and you let your mechanics take over and your training take over. And um, I, I'm not saying lighting is the only factor. I'm just giving you that. That's something it's, that's sort of overlooked as a as a yeah. so it's one of the many factors that we have in the rating system is you're talking about weather, you're talking about your lighting, you're talking about course conditions, everything there's a ton that goes on, especially with the propagators as well. I mean, that's one of the huge things. Better rated tournaments seem to have the higher rated propagators at those tournaments right. or PDTA leagues. But ah, okay. Yeah, Are we going to segue just, into that one? I was just going to yeah. say, hold on. <laughs> hold on. Okay. <laughs> because we've got, we do, there's like, honestly, I have like 80 points down. There's no way we get to them tonight, but yeah. I'm, I'm trying to also see Nick, there's the live chat board and there's a lot of good stuff coming in here yep. too. First of all, I literally had like a mind exploding moment where you said like, 
hey, the sun's different? Because that answers one of my questions and it actually gives me something to kind of grab onto because I played around and I'll just give you my experience. I played around, let's say it was like 992, okay? The first round I shot, I'm just going to do an arbitrary number of 50, okay? And it was rated 992, let's say. Round number two, I shoot like a 40, let's say like 48, and it's like 994. It went up like two points. And I'm going, that's definitely a thousand rated. And it's like, why isn't that the case? And I couldn't grasp it until you started to say in technicalities, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying technically the course could have played a little easier. And that's what the ratings are showing based off of how everybody else played. Yeah, and I think I think the one of the things that uh bothers people is why should um, my rating be based on the people who show up mm -hmm. and you have to really think of propagators as being faceless and nameless basically you had say 30 players 30 propagators that had these ratings it had not had, if you know if bob smith who's a 940 or Jim White, who's a 940, happened to be there, the same thing would happen. Yep. Now, they, they might not shoot exactly the same score, um, and they probably wouldn't. You wouldn't even expect that to be the case. But the point is, is that, you know, you grab a different set of propagators with the same mix of ratings. The system has demonstrated that it will generate statistically within a similar band of error you know, on that situation. And the, the more people you have, the more you have average human performance, you know, within the, you know, there's like a bell-shaped curve, right? In terms yep. of performance, you know, you're more likely to shoot close to your rating. In fact, you know, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but, um, well, I can even jump in now. It, here's the rough, the rough things that we've discovered is that a player will shoot more than three strokes above their rating, uh, one in six rounds. This is on average. Yep. And just the reverse, more, more than three strokes below their rating, one in six rounds. They will shoot four out of six rounds, or basically two out of three rounds, within plus or minus three strokes of their rating. Is that, is that a propagator that we're talking about? Because, I mean, somebody who's new, yes. are you going to experience, obviously, deviation from that most likely? A brand new player might excel very quick. So you're talking propagator right. level. Right. And, and here's, here's the thing, you know, what you have to consider is that the rating system is just sort of a key cog. The, the real... Um, I guess, you know, the real benefit for the PDGA and players in general, I'd like to think it was how we created the competition system and ratings just happened to be part of it. I understand. The competition system from the standpoint that the goal, the go my goal at least, was coming up with fair rating brackets, knowing that you know, nobody plays like a robot. In fact, a robot 950, a, a robot that actually throws 950 would not really be 
emulating a player. If they threw 950 every time, that's that's not what a 950 player does. They yeah. they have they have the stats that we just talked about, and so um, the the competition system is really the uh, probably the best contribution, even more than than the ratings. Of course, you know a lot of people love the ratings, but the ratings drive the competition system. But just getting a rating, I don't think would matter. Like for example, let's say we just had you know, what some people think is that we should just have two divisions, you know, mm -hmm. pro and am, right? Um, the, the fact is, uh, we could have ratings. I don't think ratings would necessarily, you know, generate the number of memberships as, hey, we've got divisions from, you know, am one, two, three, and four, and you can be reasonably assured that the people that are above the cap on that are not playing against you. And I think that's the appeal to it. I mean, you know, and the and the prize, the prizes that we have, look, we have, you know, huge numbers of amateur players. Um, so the competition system to me is really the, the bigger contribution overall than just purely having the ratings. The thing, yeah. the thing that, and, and to swing that back to course design, um, <clears throat> when when uh, we originally got to the point of you know doing a proposal for the PDGA, it took until 2002 for the PDGA to you know embrace the rating system and uh, incorporate it into the competition system. Uh, there were some lots of, I won't even go into some of the details, but there was a lot of uh, back and forth on that uh, with regard to doing it. And, you know, Roger and I and a couple other volunteers had been crunching data manually for almost five years, um, you know, showing that it worked and it was, you know, a legitimate situation. But um, so the, go ahead. Yeah. So. I think it's incredible the amount of things that went into this and what you're sharing me is very insightful. Some of these questions that I think we can ask now that I kind of alluded to a minute ago, people trying to sure. stump the system. Yeah, um, right. I think you've set up kind of the foundation to where now maybe you can kind of just give a, a quicker answer towards some of these thoughts. Cause I know I'll see you, like I said, social media, be able to give a fairly quick answer. Like, Hey, there was an OB for the women's round, or I've seen things like that even recently. So here's one of them that came sure. up mm -hmm. okay. and we don't, we don't know all the details here, but this was a comment uh, live right now. Someone said 2015 Pittsburgh worlds. They took 990 rated players. They divided them up. So if you were 990 plus, they all played one course. The rest played another course. Um, and then he said, everyone will agree the conditions were substantially worse the second day, but the first day ratings were better. So the 990 players, 990 plus players played one course. And then the next day they swapped and the lower rated players played that course, but it was substantially worse weather is how he understood it. And he said the ratings were better the second day um, or substantially worse the second day, but the first day ratings were better. So as in like, what would have contributed or what are some of the bells that are going off in your head that might've contributed to that? Well, one of the, 
<clears throat> one of the things that we've discovered, for example, is that um, rain does not seem to materially, rain without wind does not materially affect the ratings. In fact, in some cases, playing in the rain, players play more conservative and make fewer mistakes. Hmm. So that's sort of like a counterintuitive situation that we've discovered. So I, when they yep. say when they say worse weather, I'm not, you know, in other words, that has to be qualified by that. Yes, and so we don't example, know. I don't know if it was rain or if it was yeah. wind, but that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, again, we now have uh, 4 million rounds in the database <laughs> in 20 years. And again, there's a bell-shaped curve. And, you know, most of the numbers are going to be in the middle of that. But out of 4 million rounds, you know, you would expect, you know, the freakish rounds like the 1100 and 1132. And, you know, you expect them over here. And you're going to have, you know, general variance in there that can't be explained by, you know, specific, uh, you know, course factors. Um, I think there's there's this impression that you get better ratings if you have higher rated players. Yes. Can you go? Can we go down that's, that topic that's just what, a little bit? That's what ninety nine percent of the people think that if <clears throat> higher rated players are there, then your propagators are higher, which means if they shoot well and you do average, you're still going to get a pretty good rate. Let me ask it. you, Nick, directly. <laughs> I'm laughing. Isn't this what you also think? I've heard you talk about, hey, I need to go out and play on I, tour to be able to have a better I chance don't. at increasing my rating. No. So I think in certain in certain tournaments, yes, it does help. I, I'm one to, I think, where locally – having obviously knowing the courses and everything like that gives you an advantage but having higher rated players at that tournament does help the um, ratings go up as well going out on the tour where a lot of the courses are harder then you obviously have to play well to still get a good rating so i don't think going out on tour it's it might if you're a really good player it's obviously going to boost your rating a pretty good amount but if you're a middle of the pack kind of average player then even still, even going to pro tour events, it's not going to jump your rating up a ton. I mean, you can look at courses like every great player was at Delaware a year or two ago and ratings were not great at Iron Hill. It just, it's a course that in years past has not rated well, but we could play our local tournament at Buffenville, Matt, with some high level rated players there and you could shoot 1030 just by shooting six or seven down. You know what I mean? So I I'm kind of like... <laughs> I'm 50-50 on it where, like, I think there are tournaments where it does help. and But I don't think every single time on the tour as a middle-of-the-pack player, I don't think that's the number one way to get your rating up by going to all the pro tour right. events. Okay. I, I appreciate you actually, Nick. I, I, I kind of tried to throw you out there under the bus. Yeah. You actually explained it well. You're not saying, like, hey, you get a great rating by going out on the road, but you are talking, and, and I'm not going to reiterate it. Yeah. I am interested, Chuck because I do think that's a very hot question. Um, the, the idea that, oh, if I play that tournament, I'm not gonna get good ratings. But based off of what you just communicated over the previous 30 minutes, it sounds to me as if we're randomly selecting propagators out of whoever was there. Is there a certain number? Is it like six, seven, or eight propagators per round or tournament? Or is it just 
Oh, oh no! Every everybody in the okay <clears throat> everybody in the field for that round that's a propagator okay gets used unless and that's you know this is this is some of the improvements that we've made over the years is to um, dealing with tanked rounds right um, and so uh, if somebody if a propagator shoots more than sixty so you know when we when we do the calculations if a propagator shoots more than sixty points below their rating we exclude them from propagating in that round so that it doesn't artificially okay. boost the SSA okay for for people who don't might not know what is the SSA the scratch scoring average is okay. the the score that you would expect a thousand rated player to average on okay. that on that layout and. The way to find it is when you just go pull up any of the tournament results on PDGA and look at the ratings of the players and just look for the score that has the rating closest to a thousand. And you know, you can interpolate in between. Like for example, if 994, you know, is a 52 and uh, a 51 is a thousand two, you know, you know that uh, it's partway between there. So but that's what that is, a scratch scoring average. And that's that's really the pivot point for all of the ratings calculations past that. So is it possible then, Chuck, to get kind of back to that question before we get too far into SSA, which is interesting. Is it possible that a course actually does, a certain or specific course actually produces, and I know it might be your brain how far you've gone down into this, the way I'm thinking of it, that it produces better ratings is that possible that a course could do that it sounds to me like if enough rounds are played on it it would eventually even out to where it was the same as any other course but yet you have people saying like standing on their soapbox going no for sure if i play that course i everybody gets higher ratings and is that something that you've ever seen or are there is there a i don't want to call it a flaw but is there a time period for a course where it takes a while to develop that Here's here's where here, here are a couple of factors that that come into play, um, and uh, people can uh, validate what I say at virtually any one of these pro tour or national tour events that have tee times. In the first round, typically, when you know the first forty or fifty scores get posted. Uh, you can take a look and see what somebody's rating is. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, as long as they haven't stacked the field, uh, you know, meaning that they actually did random random groups, other than other than say the lead card, yep, uh, or the feature card, you'll see that rating will stay pretty close to the same number within a point or two. Now, after you um, have the first round. If you start taking a look at the numbers and what you have to do is take a snapshot or, or you know, just take a peek uh, for round two, three and four. And the first, uh, say, 30, 40 people that come in, take a look at, you know, what the rating of a 52 is, for example. And you'll watch as the tournament goes on and that rating will continue to go down. So the idea that having better ratings uh is going to improve your chances 
is disproven right there because those higher rated players who are shooting better are actually driving down the SSA as they as they go along. Ah. Now, here's here's the reason why people looked at the wrong end of the scale. The reason typically why you end up with better ratings when higher rated players come into town yes. is the course gets tricked out, um, yep. especially with OB. Yes. And and what actually happens is, if you think about it, the only thing that raises the SSA is more strokes among the propagators. Which who's, would be out of bounds. Who, who's, act, who's actually taking more strokes than normal? It's the lower rated players. Mm. Yep. So... So here's the thing. If, in fact, let's say that you took a half of the DGPT uh, field mm. at an event, half of, half of the field, and um, calculated the numbers for the top half different from the bottom half, you can, you'd, prove, you'd prove my point. Mm-hmm. Now, and so... It's- it's, so yeah, so really so really the the idea is man you want a bunch of donators playing yeah. in that field you want to pad that second <laughs> field you know if, if 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 Macbeth is listening you know it's yeah. like man make sure those 900 rated players you know are in there so, but you know, yeah. Paul Paul and I actually talked about this uh 3 years ago yeah about 3 years ago when I went to Ledgestone and you have a course that's absolutely littered with water, littered with o- artificial OB. Your top players aren't going to find the OB as much as, for me, someone who's shooting plus 15 over in one round and Paul shooting 10, 11, 12 down. If anything, I'm the one pushing that rating to a higher higher category because of how bad the bottom half <laughs> of the people are playing and how much we're throwing OB, the more strokes that we're getting and everything like so- that. Can I say this? And Chuck, I see you pulling something up there. Let me just switch over to it. But I'm going to go ahead. Um, let me ask this. Doesn't it make sense then? Because, and maybe I'm just hearing this with a flaw, but a fixed SSA, and I don't know if it'd be for like a period of time, obviously new courses, you need to base it off of how the players are playing it. But wouldn't a fixed SSA in that situation fix that? And I'm going to call it a problem, it sounds like, because the ratings should not be, I don't want to skew it by bringing in a whole bunch of 900 rated players. Um, and maybe it's not skewing it. Maybe it's the actual rating, but it sounds to be like, okay, if we divided up the higher rated players from the lower rated players, they're not going to get as high of a rating. So it's, it's based off of the players playing is how it sounds like and their quality, which you'd say that's what ratings always are. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it, can be skewed and i don't want to say on purpose but again you're saying well if you have a lot of players coming in at a lower rating that the the rating is going to be higher for the higher rated players wouldn't a fixed ssa i guess is where i'm going with that wouldn't a fixed ssa fix that for a course that had a track record let's say well <clears throat> the i'll give it for instance you know the um Let's take a look at, uh, there was a Las Vegas challenge, not not the recent one, but the one that was, um, oh, probably six, seven years ago. It wasn't as laced with OB as, as you know, some of the current um, wild horse uh, uh, layouts. 
There was uh, equivalent of six shots different in SSA strictly due to the wind between times of the day. So, you know, okay. the fixed SSA idea, you know, has a certain lure to it because mm -hmm. I understand people, people want to go out there and play their local course and, you know, try to shoot the course record. Of course, shooting a course record when you're having a putt like Nico had at the end of his tournament compared to that same distance when you're playing a recreational round is that's a difference in the way the course plays, right? I mean, <laughs> so that's that's the complication in all this. I mean, as as much as I would, you know, like like even personally to have a number, um, it's just unrealistic. And I think I think the point that we uh, came to when we were first doing these calculations is let's say that you're gathering a bunch of data to come up with that fixed SSA, okay? You know, you've got, our, our thought was, man, I, all we really need is 50 rounds. Boy, were we wrong. I mean, the idea is that if the data that you're collecting to create the fixed SSA is good enough to create that, mm -hmm. isn't it better to actually just use the data that you got? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I so, mean, that's that's kind of like the common sense thing. You say, dang, if we're gonna use this these numbers to you know create some sort of average, isn't it better to use the numbers that were generated in the actual conditions that people were playing in instead of that? It's sort of like having a fixed SSA would be going to the farmer's almanac and predicting what the temperature is gonna be on July 10th. Okay. And even yeah. if, you know, and, and even if you uh, say use current data where, you know, let's say for your location, um, it's uh, the average temperature for July 10th is uh, 75 degrees and no rain, you're still going to look at the current forecast and the thermometer to actually make a call on what you do, right? I mean, yes. It, can, yeah. Can I, guess, I give you? Can I yeah. give you a hypothetical? And okay, it's 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 going to be one of those things where it's um, not reality. But I want to ask just to help me understand something a little bit better here. Let's say there was a way, Chuck, to have exact same elements, weather, environment, atmosphere, everything. Like duplicate the day, all right? So that's where I'm starting with. And you gotcha. had different players playing it. Let's just say for the sake of discussion here, the same amount of propagators. They can be different ones, um, mm -hmm. but the same amount. Are we going to probably run into um, a different rating? Or yeah, is... absolutely. I mean, we have we have statistical numbers that show if you have um, if you have ten propagators that the SSA statistically ninety five percent of the time you know will fall between X and X. You know, it'll be say one point five strokes uh, different ninety five percent of the time. And if we have 
100 propagators like we do in some of our big events, you know, maybe it'll be 0 0.8 stroke, uh, you know, variance with 95% probability. We have we have tables like that. And like I said, you know, when people ask these questions, it's like, yeah, we're, we're going to get variances, but we're going to be closer than we will if we made up some sort of a, um, you know, an average number. Uh, right. And the thing about it is, is think about how the course changes over the year. Uh, for example, let's say that we had the identical course could be located in, say, Florida and also in Minnesota. You know, literally, you were able to duplicate it. Let's we're using your hypothetical of, mm -hmm. you know, the exact same conditions. Mm -hmm. You know that in Minnesota, that that SSA is going to change due to temperature and foliage and ground cover of snow uh, over 12 months. The thing that's cool about the rating system is we can do PDGA events in nasty weather. Right. Mm -hmm. And and the numbers and the numbers are fair. And, you know, it's it's uh, based on that same set of propagators. And all of those factors are taken into account based on the scores that they shoot. Right. And so I guess it's very interesting to me. All this is very interesting. Um <laughs> <laughs> there's a few questions and we don't want to, sp I, I mean, yeah, there's a lot to do with ratings here, but can I just ask what's your current involvement with the rating system now? Anything? Um, I think I heard through the grapevine, you were able to, um, sell that or the PDJ purchased it from you. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, this had been in the works for uh, a few years. Um, the, uh, the IT team, Steve Gans and, and Pete Christ had been working on, um, converting the tournament manager spreadsheet, you know, the Excel spreadsheet that we had been using. That's actually what I created uh, with uh, Brian Honiger and Roger for gathering data back in the early 2000s. And, you know, it's been updated and tweaked and whatever. And that was really the tournament director's um, stat sheet or whatever that that uh, allowed them to send the data to the PDGA for things beyond ratings. You know, ratings was just one part of it. It was, you know, payouts mm. and new yep. memberships and all that. And so the plan was to first get the uh, tournament manager um, uh, online, web-based system, get that debugged, and then take a look at figuring out how we could um, bring the rating system into the PDJ's web system, because the way that the system was working is they were getting the, the data and the tournament manager, uh, transmitting a data file to Roger, and uh, Roger would crunch the numbers and then send the data file back to the PDJ. And then on that magic day of the ratings update, the PDJ would pump the data into the files and you would get to see your new rating. And so now, um, they um, <clears throat> they had made an offer and they've now purchased the PDGA version of the rating system. Um, and uh, Roger and I are uh, splitting that money um, uh, over some time payments. Awesome. So so that's that's what's happened. Um, can I get you really quick? Bail. Can I get you really quick, Chuck, to pull off your green screen so I can get you up larger so people can see you a little bit better? 
Okay, sure. That'll just make it a little easier, I think, for conversation. For people listening on our podcast, they're like, we don't get it, but... Yeah. <laughs> oh, gotcha. But for okay. this, it's a little bit easier for people. So you so you sold it. Now you called it the PDGA version. I think we could literally go on forever, but here's my takeaway. And Nick, tell me, tell me if you agree with this. My takeaway is yeah, that yeah. we are you get very close. So anybody who really believes that they found that loophole that makes the whole system invalid, they're really talking about your rating is off by uh, five points, eight points, 12 points. We're not talking drastic. We're not talking, wow, you're really a 930, but you, you know, you're throwing yeah. like your 990. Like that doesn't happen. And that's what, that's what my takeaway is. Is that what you're hearing too, Nick? Well, yeah, I hear that. I mean, I think a lot of things like you were talking about earlier is certain areas obviously play better than other areas. Like the Charlotte disc golf scene is better than the Massachusetts ah, disc golf yeah. scene. You know what I mean? And so when you get a, thousand rated player out of charlotte he might be a 10 20 rated player in massachusetts and like one of the jokes every single time i come down when i moved down to virginia i think from massachusetts i was 960 at the time and then when i moved down to virginia i went down to like 940 or 935 or something like that just from not knowing the courses not practicing as much and then going out to tournaments and just epically failing at them and so me and my buddy hunter who i'm staying at his house right now we always had this joke that, you know, I'm a 990 rated player in Massachusetts, but I'm a 950 rated player in Virginia. <laughs> so it, it's always been, I, you know, and, I, and yeah. I, I, what I'd like to say about it is we are now at the point where we should actually be, you know, now that I'm not running the system, lobbying the PDGA to do breakouts of ratings based on courses because there's a significant enough difference in that. Now we can put a pin in this conversation and continue yeah. on some ratings questions, but this is a segue point into some of the course-related okay. types of things. Yeah. So um, let's do that. that. Let's do that because you know where we're going. So we talked about it. We're going to talk about the courses and and what it looks like today. What people want. What what players want. What viewers want. Um, maybe what the tournament directors want. Um, that's a whole conversation. There's one final wrap up here for the ratings that, and I'm going to, I don't want to force you to a yes or no, but it would be very interesting if you gave me a yes or no. And then if you want to follow it up, you could with, is there something, and I'm going to call it, I, I think I might've heard rumor of it talked about this way. There's a fudge factor in the sense that if players continue to get better, Paul McBeth's rating continues to get better, and let's say the top 20 continue to get better, and the same players, are they're all playing, and they're getting better ratings. Obviously, Paul's has the highest rating ever, which means he can keep going higher. There's not a limit to the ceiling for ratings. Does that mean eventually uh, it, that everybody's player ratings are start creeping up over time? I guess yes or no, and then you can follow it up. What do you think? <laughs> The, the only inherent creep has to do with courses. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be okay. related to, to that. Yep. Um, if, in fact, we were playing courses that were in play back more when the rating system was put into play, uh, there wouldn't be any creep. But the, the OB is the big... X factor that is um, affecting affecting some of this creep, which is what I had talked about before when people are saying, oh man, I can get better ratings when the top guys come into town. Well, it's because the of the out-of-bounds penalties 
you know, padding, padding extra strokes. The, yeah. that, um, that slide that I had, if you want to put it back up, that was so you essentially, can, yeah, I'll switch over to it. There you go. Yeah. So if you take a look at that, at red section, I call it penalty padding and, uh, I'll show you something that we can really talk about. <laughs> and hopefully people this, can see that for our viewers no, it's, explain yeah, it's, it for it's our viewers on, or our listeners it's blurred on purpose okay but basically the the green tournaments and the courses down in the green section um are what we would consider conventional courses uh less than one ob penalty per player per round just to give a comparison to ball golf, you know, if we're if we're supposedly going to be trying to emulate ball golf, yeah, um, then he, it, here's something that you might not be aware of. Even with all the water hazards and things that you see on tour, what would you guess? I'll, I'll do a question. What would you guess <laughs> is the average uh, amount of penalties per round per player on the PGA Tour? Oh, the PGA. Now, yeah, I read your fairways to stats, and I think I might have seen that, but I'll ask Nick. Uh, Nick, what do you think? The, the, so penalties is how you put it, I think. Yeah, so PGA Tour. Yeah. How many around per person? Per per player, I was going to say at most one to two. I mean, I think two is kind of high. I'm trying to think back at tournaments that I've watched in the past, and I don't know. I, I feel like one – Okay. Maybe. So and then, PGA. Even I feel like that's high. Yeah. Okay. For PGA, what do you, what do you think, Chuck, or what do you know? Yeah, the actual uh, the 200 players that they track, the average penalties, and this is not just um, water penalties. This is anything that counts as a penalty mm -hmm. is one penalty per two and a half rounds. Mm. One okay. penalty. Yeah. Yeah. So, now, yeah. if you take a look at the courses, the courses in the purple section at the top. That's Ledgestone, USDGC, Glassblown, and Utah Open 2018. Mm -hmm. OBs per player per round, 6.2, 5.2, 5.1, 4.6. So we're talking about roughly, um, you know, 20 times as many penalties. Okay, yeah. so let's do this. In comparison. This is the, that's the tease right there. I see right where we're going. This is perfect. Can we pause this? We're going to play that game, judge that disc golfer, and then we're going to transition right into this topic of courses because this is interesting to see how courses are playing now and certain courses are playing compared to, again, relating to golf, and that's a whole nother debate. But mm -hmm. let's go ahead and, um, Nick, you ready to play judge that disc golfer? Let's do it. Okay. So let me uh, get it up here, everybody, and play along with us. And, uh, we're going to go right back to that, Chuck. And here's the game. Okay. Judge that disc golfer. Judge that disc golfer. The game show where you judge a disc golfer you've never met. Can you tell us your name? Uh, I'm Darren Belanger. All right, Darren. So how long have you been playing disc golf for? Uh, about, yeah, three or four years. Three or four years. But I've been throwing the Frisbee more longer than that. A frisbee longer than that. Okay. Um, do you have a PDGA number? I do. Okay. Do you know what that is? One 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 oh two one. 
Okay, in the hundred thousands, do you have a player rating that you remember? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's 886. 886. So here's a little bit more insight, Nick, for you. Have you ever played in a tournament? Yes. Okay, what's your best finish in any division? Uh, I won uh, MJ15 at the Mass Junior Smash Junior Tournament last year, and then I won Rec uh, at a C tier uh, the year previous. Okay. So here we go. First question we're going to ask you is, how far can you throw a disc? Okay, so this is how it's played. Uh, Chuck, we asked him, and you heard his introduction there. Uh, how far is he going to say? That's how the game plays here. How far is he going to say he can throw a disc? He said he was rated, what, 8-something, eight 880? I forgot. I missed the number. But All right, Nick, we're going to make you go first. We're going to let the guest go second. Well, how first. far is he going to say? So my insider knowledge on this kid is that he is friends with Tim, who we had on the show two weeks ago. Ooh, did you? And by the I way, actually, did you get out did, with Tim? Did, yes, you did. I meant I meant to say that last week. Yeah, we had played a couple days after we did our podcast wow. two weeks ago, and uh, we were playing hole eleven whites, which at Maple Hill is about four hundred twenty feet downhill, and we were we were with a you know Kevin Cole, who's one of the furthest throwers in Mass. And so we we're all like, you know what, let's let's see you rip, Tim. And he actually did. I think he said in the podcast he could throw a 425 to 450. He probably threw one about 20 feet past White's basket, which, you know, is probably a 440-foot drive. Okay. Anyways. So I did not know. Completely. So I did not know. Well, this is totally set up now for you to win, Chuck. We got to see what well, you he had told. Yeah, we had told, <laughs> he had told me that, you know, his buddy was going to be our next guest on the Judge That Disc Offer. So oh, wait. Was I'm he out say, there? Was, oh, his buddy wasn't out there. His his buddy was – no. Okay. His buddy is – yeah, he Good. wasn't with us when I went out okay. and played. Okay, so here so we I go. Don't know that, how I don't far, know that kind of knowledge. Yeah, how far is he going to say Three, he can throw? 350. Okay, 350. I can put him back up if you'd like to see him, Chuck, just to make that judgment. How far is he going to say no, he can that, throw? That's no problem. Is this is this like um, – Price you know, is right. Price is right. You can't uh, – you don't we know don't. if you go over. You can So answer. if I say 350 – but you say 375, obviously pretty much anything over 375, you would get the point. Yes. Because, but you know. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say 390. Okay. That's perfect. We, we prefer that people don't just choose one over because that sounds kind of, you know, whatever. Yeah. But here we yeah. go. Let's see what, let's see what he answers. Let me pull this back up and we'll uh, see what he's got. So here we go. Uh, I threw last Saturday, I threw 430 flat ground. Wow. 430. So Chuck, yay. We have our sound applause in the background. We'll get, we'll get that in there one day. Okay. So Chuck, you got point number one, Nick, is this going to go like usual where you let the guest win? No. Yeah, probably. <laughs> that's that he, seems to be. The, he's the hoping way to I'll do give it. him a good rating. Oh wait, yeah. I can't do that anymore. Yeah, exactly. That was going to be one of our questions. We were going to ask if you could uh, adjust our ratings for us. Okay, so here we go. There's six questions. You got question number one up on the board. Question number two. Here we go. Four hundred and thirty feet. Can I just ask, how are you measuring that? I, I use UDISC. Okay, shout out to UDISC. We had Matt Kruger on a couple weeks ago, and so he's the guy, the brains behind that. Uh, let's ask this question to you. How many discs do you have in your bag? Uh, I just counted, and I got... Nick, <laughs> I can see you off camera, and I see your eyes like, really da, 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 quickly. Da, 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 like, da, 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 wait, wait, there's yeah. a disc golf bag in shot. Like, so, let, me, let me count Okay, it. everybody yeah. on... Everybody else could see that too, including Chuck. So this is totally fair, but I don't know. You're going to have to see. 
we're going to let Chuck go first here. So now, Chuck, how many discs are in his bag? Uh, let's see, 22 and a half. So I get the over and under. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 22 and a half, is that counting the mini? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, the mini. We'll count the mini. <laughs> the mini as well. Uh, I'll go with uh, 22 is actually what I was going to say. So I'll go... Uh, I'll go 20. I got to make his, that's, that's about what I want. Oh man. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> this is going to be close. Let's see what happens here. Let's give him the opportunity to answer. I think, I think it's going to be 22. <laughs> here we go. 23. Oh, 23 discs. All right, Nick, <laughs> were you close? He's, he's going to have back problems in like three years. <laughs> 23 discs. He's 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 practicing yeah. to become Felberg's caddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Felberg with 33 different molds. <laughs> he's gonna have back problems. 23. So um incredible, Chuck. You said 22 and a half. You should have just picked that one more half. You would have had the right on the money. That was really good. All right. Uh Nick, you were very you said you wanted it as well. You should have went to 23. You would have had it. I should have. I just, I was like, you know what? I don't want to go one off of it. It might be a little bit less, you know, but very it's close. all good. That's very, very yeah. close. Okay. So Chuck is up two right now. So um, let's go ahead and get into question number three. All right. Let me pull that up. Here we go. How many aces do you have? I have. Okay. We simply asked him, how many aces do you have? And you heard him start to say, I have. And now, Nick, over the previous weeks, we've people say, I have zero. I have, like, I have zero. I have zero. I have 25. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, all over the board. So he says, I yeah. have, but is he going to say zero? Four. Nick answers four. No, nah, I'm going to go with four. All right. So, Chuck, he answered four. You get to choose now. He says he's been playing three or four years. You I, heard his I was going to. I was going to say three. Okay. So, Nick's got the four and over, and you've got the three. And I, got, I got the four and over. All right. Nick. One of your comments in like one of our very first episodes when someone answered like zero or one, you're like, I would hate to have waited seven years to have one ace. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, so I think Simon had said the first week that most people don't get their ace for three, uh, seven That's years. And was. I was like, dang, I, I got mine. Like, I don't know, what was I playing? Probably a year or two, Matt, well, Nick, when I got it up here. You're leagues. just a different breed of disc golf. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just completely different breed of disc golfer now just as a as an aside note i had two last week both, pay, both for pay tournaments. Uh, our local mulligan league it was a mulligan ace on the first hole of the round and also up at highbridge i aced on sunday so two in a week <laughs> wow right. they insane. do say they they do say aces come in pairs usually or something like that yeah no hey, kidding. hey also I had, I had one a couple weeks ago yeah and i haven't had one in a few years but Darren actually just jumped in the chat board, everybody. He is here live watching as we judge. Here live. Yeah, so let's see what his answer is. And this was question three. We'll see what happens. Let me pull it up. Here we go. Question or the answer for question three. One real ace, but I have two. I have one other kind of fake ace. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> a fake ace. And um, he'll actually explain that here in just a second. But that point goes to Chuck. One That's ace. Chuck's again. But he said he also had uh, one, what did he say, fake ace. Let's see what he says about the fake ace, and then we'll pull up question four. Chuck is in the lead, three to zero. Three zero. All right, here we yeah. go. 
Okay, do you want to explain the fake ace? Okay, after I played around at Newton Hill, shout out to Newton Hill, I I was throwing uh, random shots on hole one, and it, it went in. It hit off a tree and went in. So, so practice ace. Practice All right, ace. so you have one real ace. Um, all right, let's ask this question. Do you have a favorite pro disc golfer? I do. Okay, you do. So who would that be? That would Okay. This one, you got to just judge by the view that you've seen of this individual and how he's answered. No, no kidding. Now, the way we're going to do this, Nick, I was talking to a few of our fans, and I think people would like if we actually go until we get a correct answer. And so we'll we'll give like four guesses if it okay. takes getting to that. Yeah. Kind of like we did the yeah, disc. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, kind of like we did the With disc the, mold the guess disc. before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, so I think Chuck's up first here. Um Chuck, yes, he is. What do you think he's going to answer as his favorite professional disc golfer? I I'm going to at least grab Simon. Yes. Right. I'm going to go Paul Macbeth. Okay. So first of all, Chuck, good job with the Simon. A lot of people don't realize it, but regionally here in Maple Hill, that's where he's been hanging out. And a lot of people. Exactly. Yeah. I, knew, I knew that. That was, yeah. uh, you know, Simon, I, I kind of keep up with what's happening. Great. <laughs> Simon's been my safe pick like the last four weeks. <laughs> I think two of them, it's actually done me well. Okay. So because I do know the answer and we're going to go until we get it correctly. Neither of you are correct. They were great guesses and probably the top two you should always choose. We're going to reset and we're going to let Chuck go again. Uh, I'll say Eagle. Okay. That's a great guess uh, as well. So he's got a prodigy bag. Let's try Chris Dickerson. Wow. Very insightful. Nick, you're starting to learn when you watch the video. Cause I don't have yeah. it up right now. You're starting to learn to look at all the details. Uh, okay. Excellent job. Okay. So once again, not correct. We're going to go into round three here of guessing. We'll do four max and then we will just, uh, well, I'll, I'll yeah. pick, pick a number between one and 10 or something. <laughs> all right, Chuck, back to you. Here we go. Guess one more. Ah, uh, let's see. So the prodigy angle, um, Hey, I got to go with my homeboy, Kale. Kale. All right. That's Kale Visca. Awesome. Awesome. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go Ricky. Ricky Wysocki. Okay. <laughs> so this is going to take it to round four, everybody. It is still not correct. Oh. So we're and I will give All you right. a clue at this. Like, great player. Top 20 for sure. Uh, I don't know where they exact fall. Actually, Oh man, I wish I really quickly had a way to pull up where they were and I could tell you what place they were in the world and then you could just guess off of that. But I don't know and I can't yeah, access yeah. it that quick. Um, I, and you're not looking at the chat board, but people in the chat board did guess correctly. So let's go back to Chuck and let's see here, Chuck. Uh, this is fourth guess. Well, <clears throat> this, this may not be it, but I'll at least give some props to a New Englander top player, Steve Brinster. Wow, you are really in the know, man. That is a great, yeah. great shout out. U.S. champion yeah. a few years back. Um, He's yes. the man. All right, Nick. Steve's awesome. Nick, your guess. Top 20 player. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's go Garrett Gerthy, double G. Okay, so this was round four. Neither of you got it correctly. What we're going to do is the buzzer lightning round. Literally, whoever gets it out of their mouth first is going to win the point. I'm going to give a clue here. So you're both on time. You ready? As soon as I give this yep. clue, I'm going to listen and see who can answer it. Um, their nickname may be related to a recent holiday um, in the patriotic sense. 
in a patriotic sense. July 4th. KJ, Kevin Jones. There you KJ go. USA. Oh, yeah. Good know, job, Kevin, Nick. Kevin was going to be my pick because of the prodigy bag. And then I was like, Chris yep. Dickerson's really nope. good. No, Kevin, yeah. That's a good call. Yeah. You were yeah. very Kevin's awesome. you were very close, Chuck. You said, I'm going to go the prodigy route. I said, here it is. It's Chuck's to win. <laughs> yeah. Kale, though, is an awesome guest because Kale is just a super good dude okay. in general. So that means Nick still has a chance because there's six full questions and Chuck has three and Nick has one. Let's go into question. I got, I got one okay. right. All right. Number five. KJ USA, Kevin Jones. Kevin Jones. Shout out to him. That's a few weeks we've gotten that now. All right. So here we go. All right. So let me ask this question. You said you could throw over 400 feet. Would you rather get an ace, a massive ace over 400 feet or play around with KJ USA? Okay. So Nick, you're up, I believe. So what's your answer? He's going to play around with KJ USA. Yeah. So this is um, a question we ask every week. We ask if they'd rather hit a 400 foot ace Chuck or play with their favorite player. What do you think? You can guess the same as Nick, if you'd like, it's just obviously going to push at that point. Yeah. He can't win if I take the same thing. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Come on, I'm a statistics guy, right? Yep. All right. So, but that's what I would guess playing around with KJ and throwing that 400 foot ace in the round with him. Yes. So we think we're going to change that question in the future. We got to start putting money. Yeah, yes. we got to put money. This was pre-recorded. So rather hit an ace. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. This is what. So let's see. Ago? Yeah. Let's, let's see what he says. Uh, hands down. I'd, I'd rather play with Kevin. There you go. So the, the crowd what goes wild. Your... And um, that's a, a win for Chuck. But let's just get in the last question here. We'll just do it for fun. Favorite disc golf disc. Not, not necessarily... Um, plastic or like specifically but like your mold the favorite mold that you throw i gotta give it to the okay so just for fun chuck if nick hits this nail on the head exactly out of the thousand disc improved molds by the pdga yeah. would you be willing to give him a tie going to a final bonus point i suppose okay I so mean... nick one guess Thanks. one guess uh an m4 M4. All right, Chuck, for fun, what do you guess? D3. Okay, so we're going Prodigy. Let's see what he says here. And here we go. Discmania MD3. I carry like <laughs> four. Oh. And they're all really awesome. All right, MD3. So I, I wait a minute. I get I got two thirds, right? With the D3. Yes, <laughs> I know. One I was third. Like, you get one third. At first, when you no, guys were guessing. You got two thirds. You got two thirds, actually. Yeah. When you guys You're were right. guessing, I was like, man, it sounds right, <laughs> but but it's not. Okay. So yeah. here we asked him a question: what was interesting in his bag? And this will close it out. So let me just pull that up. What would you say is the most unique thing in your disc golf bag? Well, oh, like two years ago, I won this wonderfully dyed Yoda disc that I keep. I never throw it anymore. I just keep it as a good luck charm because it gives me the force. So that, that's all I care. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Thanks for joining us tonight. Have a good round. Okay, so that's Judge That Disc Golfer. Chuck, you are our winner. Nick. How many have you won, Chuck? I mean, how many have you won, Nick? Like, one? Uh, realistically, maybe one. In eight I weeks? I say maybe one. Our guests yeah. come in swinging hot. So congratulations, yeah, Chuck. Way to go. So was that was that disc a force that had the hot stamp? 
<laughs> well, didn't say. We'll see. We'll see if he answers that in the live feed, and I'll be able to confirm in just a minute if he's still here. <laughs> That's a great guess, though. That's a great guess. And somebody just commented, Nick, you owe another lunch. <laughs> I do. I yeah. I think I'm up to seven lunches now, or something like now, that. So Chuck, when I see you out on the road at some point, I'm either gonna give you ten dollars, or we can go out for for lunch. Nick needs a sponsor. Uh, I, I gotcha. I, I don't know if we can go eat inside anymore to to for a while at least, right? We'll we'll have to get we'll have to get takeout or delivery. This is you know, too get funny. The, get the mask on. This is yeah. too funny, Nick. You need a sponsorship now to like actually. So you need a sponsorship need, to tour, and now you need a sponsorship support, for yeah. I need a sponsorship for a lot of things in my life. And uh, Chipotle would be a great one for the podcast. And, you know, just anyone who's going to give me a million dollars a year to travel the country and play disc golf, that's another great one. Preferably. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, let's do this, Chuck. You started transferring into a few things, but let me just kind of queue up this topic here. And this will be our closing out topic. And we can talk as long as we want to, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we can do this somewhere in the range of like 15 minutes would be awesome. Um, let's see here. Okay. Course design in how it should be. And this topic came up at least it's, it's been a discussion for a while, but, uh, Simon Lazat, if you look him up on Instagram, you will see that he made a post, I believe yesterday, as well as today, um, where he says, uh, he talks about course rounds and he says it was amazing. In fact, he says no gimmicks, no holes. You can blow the whole tournament on uh, a four way tie for the lead before the last hole top 10 all within striking distance. How doesn't everyone see that this is what disc golf could be the amount of lucky and unlucky things I see each and every week on all the courses. Um, it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, last weekend, I barely saw any luck or bad luck. I saw skill and I saw mistakes. Um, and then he's then then he goes and he brings it to the DDO, which is played on Country Club, which is a golf course with rope OB everywhere. Um, can we start this topic by saying what if you had to answer like just very short, like here's my opinion on it. I'll start with Nick. What in your mind is the stereotyped disc golf course, Nick? It's weird. It, it's changed over the last couple of years. I mean, before we we only played on wooded courses, and we played on courses that say weren't spectator friendly. But over the last few years, we've really incorporated in using ball golf courses. And GBO's obviously always done that. Um, the Masters Cups just recently, over the last I think four years, started doing that. But Disc golf has slowly been shifting a lot of their tour events into golf course, disc golf courses. So, I mean, I think, I guess it's weird. The stereotype for your average local player, I think, is tight wooded courses, like for you and me, Matt. And I'm sure out in Minnesota has a lot of those. But uh, out in the tour now, it seems like there's a very large majority of it is played on open courses now. Memorial, Vegas, um, Deglo is somewhat open um, fox run is pretty open for the most part i know it's not on a ball golf course but it's weird we're we're almost at that point where it's 50 50 so in ball golf courses and regular disc golf courses let me ask chuck because he's been playing longer than both of us combined mm -hmm. disc golf courses and I, i'm i'm just genuinely asking i think i have somewhat of an awareness but like worlds back like some of the first world championships 
were they played in the woods or were they played on in a park location that was more open air in a general sense? Well, I would say that um, if you go at the definition of disc golf in relation to ball golf, disc golf is about shaping shots around vertical hazards mm -hmm. as opposed to ball golf, which is avoiding nasty surfaces. So it's a vertical game versus a horizontal game in terms of landing areas. Yeah. So the answer would be, yeah, I mean, it was almost um, against course design to not do something that, you know, got an obstacle of some sort, somewhere on the fairway at least, um, on properties that were relatively open. And of course, a lot of the properties that the courses were put on were not put on uh, ball golf, you know, properties, mm -hmm. yeah. which by their very nature, the scale of the game has, you know, much wider areas so that it doesn't really fit well, fit disc golf well, especially in some of these courses that um, are combo now. Mm. You know, we've got that move towards, uh, you know, having additional uh, places to play that are on ball golf courses. But to me, it wouldn't be my favorite thing. And, you know, uh, definitely different than essentially the courses that just just take a look at all the courses that I've either designed for worlds, designed for tournament play, went and vetted at different uh, sites. I honestly can't think of a course that was ever played that was as open as Kale's. Mm. Now that doesn't say that it's wrong. It's just different. Yes. And so that's that's literally yeah, what our discussion is going to be. Um, Nick, and this is... Um, I don't want, I'm trying to pin you on a yes or no here, but wh which would you rather play? Would you rather play? And I'm okay. So here's a, would you tight, rather game? Tight wood. <laughs> would you tight rather wood. play Maple Hill? And I know you haven't played the preserve championship. So let's pick another one. Let's pick Memorial. No, that that's not oh. really fair, but no, well, it, you know it, what I'm saying? You can do Memorial. I play, I play Memorial, but you know what I'm saying? Which, so, which type would yeah. you rather play personally? Tight wooded. Okay. Like Bruce Ridge, even Fox run is probably, so far, the most wide open course that I've played that I was like, wow, this course is amazing to play. So, and that's, I think, because it's a very incredibly well-designed course. But yeah, Maple Hill over Arizona or Vegas or anything like that. Maple Hill 100, 1,000%. So, and here's an interesting point to that. And I think Chuck's going to be able to show us this in just a second. Is, and this might sound crazy, but my son's really good at disc golf. And I went out and played with him on um, the new layout at Maple Hill. It's called Diamonds. It, it was the FPO gold, or it was the gold modified for the female division, which is how I should say it. But now it's being revamped, new holes, new tee pads. And I went out with my 10-year-old, and no joke, by hole 11, and good to him, we were, like, tied, or he was one behind me. Yeah. And... I feel like and this is just in contrast to Simon's post and Simon, I love you. I'm not like trying to, I'm not trying to say you're bad for your opinion. I think your opinion is great, but I also think there's an interesting opinion to say that why can't you have the close battles and the exciting finishes in the woods? Like meaning a player like yeah. my son can now compete against other people. Look, look at James Conrad, right? He loves the woods. Look at yeah. all these other. So I think a good mix is healthy. But I'm going to say from a spectator's point of view, it is kind of 
boring because there's that element of like, oh, is he going to throw OB here or is he going to hit his line here? But when you're on a course like the Preserve Championship, I go, I don't have that question. I just go, who's not going to have a 200 foot landing zone? Yeah. Yeah. Who's not going to mess up like a shank? Who's not going to shank a shot? Because realistically, yeah, your landing zone's way larger. So I don't know. There's a lot to talk about this. I want to see what uh, Chuck has to say, because he actually has some stats here um that he can show us so chuck what are you showing us here yeah go uh for those that uh can't really see uh well because it's not intended not to be that way pro world's right up here 4.2 this is fox run 4.2 ob's per player per round down here in the green zone we got brewster ridge at 0.6 so uh, which would be uh, the purpose of the green color is what we would consider normal historical disc golf. And so we saw the contrast there. Um, the thing that I would say from a fairness standpoint that was interesting is the fact that uh, we played five rounds there. I didn't play, but there were five, five rounds played, three on Fox Run and two on Brewster Ridge. Whichever course was going to be the third court played course played three times probably affected who won. Oh, for sure. For sure. But here, yeah. here's the question about um, how these penalties play in, because I don't think it just means that that course is playing tougher with OB. But for instance, the preserve championships, that's going to have with a no very OB. low. Yeah, it's going to have well, a very low little, penalty little system. Yeah. And it's just in an open area. So to propose that there's two options that I see Chuck take it into a wooded area where there's more obstacles, as you said, for the flight path or create what most people are going to consider artificial OB, which that's a whole nother topic I would like to actually touch on tonight, but aren't those really our two options, Chuck? Well, I would say yes, but there's also, there's another factor to consider and that's the part that is, um, lacking in the in the analysis of things just because you have ob and just because you have trees doesn't mean the holes are fair True. fair being defined as the uh there's a better correlation in, in other words a fair a fair layout will have a good correlation between a player's rating and their finish position. Mm -hmm. Okay? So just having trees, you can have a terrible course for correlation, or you can have a great course, and that's the essence of course design. Yes. And the same thing is true about out-of-bounds, you know, is the out-of-bounds fairly testing the skill of the players meaning are worse players taking more penalties than better players as as defined by their rating. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so I, so yeah, I mean the answer is you know, a qualified yes, but design is where I think there's a big failure and part of that is the fact that um we haven't developed a testing uh, regimen where courses are tested before we play them in tournament high-level competitions. We used to do that um, back when I was involved in doing, you know, some of the 
vetting for the uh, for the worlds and whatever, there would be test events. And then we would look at the numbers and say, you know, these holes need to be tweaked to play better with a better correlation than um, than they showed in the test. Yeah. And so, of course, part of the problem, part of the problem is testing them. Most of the time, you're not going to have the top players there to do the test. So you're testing it with lower level players. So it's a it's a tricky situation. But, I'm, you know, that's something that could potentially improve things going into the future. And, of course, Kale didn't have the opportunity, you right. know, to shake down and say, holy buckets, you know, this is playing <laughs> way too easy. And, you know, he just said, look, you know, we'll just have to take it as it is. And frankly, it ended up, you know, being there were enough players that were close to each other. Unfortunately, unless you were a bomber, you couldn't be in that discussion. Yeah, right. So yep. there's a lack of fairness if, in fact, only distance is being tested. Okay. So can you do this one more time? Just pull up your full screen. I want to have a conversation here yeah. between the three of us on okay. um, this, these few topics. We're gonna wrap it up here. Um, I know people are appreciating the show. Um, Nick, I know you're, <laughs> you've intruded on the I Thomas's am. residence. So I gotta, yeah. Okay, so, but which, here, which, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so here's a few thoughts. I think some considerations, and I'm doing this mainly for our listening audience and our viewer audience. They can comment and we can look at these comments after and, and review them, appreciate the feedback. Which type of courses, these are two different questions, do spectators prefer? And that's a big consideration nowadays um, in the sense that media has been probably the most changed thing or a newest addition to disc golf since back in the beginning, media. So we now have an audience that is also important. Which type of course do they prefer? My initial reaction is the one that plays more exciting on each hole, uh, not, the, not the prettiest one or the one that necessarily the pros like playing the most. Like. Yeah. Part of it to me at GBO is fun to see if they can land it. And if they go OB, it's kind of cool to see how they overcome that. Um, yeah. I'm, see, I'm the opposite about watching GBO. I've never cared to, I don't know, the GBO, it just doesn't look appealing for me to watch where it's like if it's 35, 40, or 25, 30 mile per hour wins, the players are doing what okay. they can to obviously throw through that. And then when they're putt, you know, if they put it below the basket and then all of a sudden it raises six feet above it and then blows backwards and then yes. rolls downhill into OB water. I'm like, dude, that's I don't not think even... I don't think I mean what? the elements so much as yeah. I do. Um, but that makes it unenjoyable as a spectator. Me yes. being a spectator, that makes it I agree with you on that one. The GBO and was going to be honest, that one is kind of boring to watch, even with the added OB and whatnot. But I don't I think I guess where I'm going with this is. Uh, to me, and, and here I am, I live at Maple Hill. We bring it up every single show. I would love, and I love watching coverage at Maple Hill. And I, Chuck, do you like, which would you prefer? A, a yes or no type question. Would you prefer Maple Hill on TV coverage or would you prefer GBO? No, no question. Um, I, I love the Maple Hill course. Uh, Steve did a great job. And I'll tell you this, this is one thing people may not be aware of. But uh, over the years, Steve provided uh, his scoring data to me yes. and also Steve West, who's one of our statisticians behind the scenes, and has made tweaks on holes to get better scoring separation yes. and, and that type of thing. So he's benefited from that analysis. For sure. Um, and, 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 but but yeah. here's the thing. 
he already had, you know, a monkey could have designed that course and people would like it just because of the terrain. I mean, yeah. so, but all I'm saying is uh, he and, uh, is it Dave Jackson that was? Yes, uh, Dave Jackson uh, was yeah, definitely Dave, part of that. Dave used you know, to be there, they, yep. they've, they've done a, give a shout out to Dave. Um, and so, you know, they, they've taken a, a look at it, you know, from a fairness but standpoint. But that's also, and, yes. And excitement. And excitement. Yes, yeah. because because and the excitement factor is important. As I'm saying, it's a new um, metric that you need to look at because we aren't just appealing to the players now. There's a whole market that's funding everything that's happening in disc golf, including, yeah. and I, I don't mean to throw this out there in a negative way, including Simon's salary and Paul's salary. It's not. It's funded by the disc golf manufacturers who are benefiting from all the players coming in and buying their plastic. So it's it's a full mm -hmm. circle thing here that it has to be enjoyable to watch. And there are, are going to be a spectrum of people choosing what they would prefer to watch. I understand that. Can we move yeah. real quick? We, yeah, go ahead, Nick. Well, yeah, I was going to say, so we, we were talking about Simon's post and how, you know, one of the biggest things, one of the things that really saved coverage, I think, for this weekend, it was fun to watch. Don't get me wrong. It is fun to watch the pros really bomb out drives and try to get Eagles. But... What was really fun is that it came down to three players on the final hole. That doesn't just happen at open courses. Like, right. look at how many times, Matt, you and I watched at Maple Hill coming down into hole 18. Ricky throws a flick up shot with a putter and he gets Ricky Wysocki. <laughs> he hits the back wall and it rolls. I was there. Feet, it landed, the, other, the, the disc Kale, ended under Stephanie's, Kale, my wife's chair. It, it's, it was yeah, very like, cool. Yeah. Kale won it one year, and then there was a sudden death between Bradley and MJ. Yes. You know, every every weekend's different. There are so there have been so many tournaments in the world that on wooded courses. So 2014 Worlds, you had the most epic playoff that will probably ever happen in disc golf, <laughs> and that was on a pretty wooded course. So so, but so that's that's more enjoyable for me as a consumer and a player to watch and play. Now is like Chuck said, shaping shots through vertical objects. Do we have to do the players have to enjoy it or else they won't come and play for sure. How many pros are making decisions off if they like the courses or not a bunch. Now, if the payouts get high enough, that might influence it as well, which There's, is also oh, yeah, interesting. Exactly. So, yep. so this is kind of the last little topic out of here is the idea of what is your opinion, Chuck, in your, all of your course designs. I'm sure there's a preference, but in all of your course designs, the and let me define what I'm about to say. Um, we have, I guess you would call it artificial OB, and you have natural OB. Okay. Now, my definition, as I understand it, is someone laying out a rope or putting out some, I'll just call it gimmicked pole or other, where it says, "Hey, this area over here is out of bounds," as opposed to a natural OB being a waterway. Um, a rock wall or um, the roof of a building or something along those lines that would be considered natural. Is that how you see it? And how have you incorporated those, either of those in, in your course design? Well, I would say that I am uh, pretty much opposed to OB in general. Uh, when you think of out of bounds is, you know, in ball golf, for example, out of bounds is hitting the ball outside the property. And so, you know, I think we've unfortunately gotten, you know, that term for penalty areas within the property. Now, obviously, you have to deal with water. And, you know, one of the things that um, 
I try to do, especially since lower level people will be playing, you know, the courses, their public courses, many of them, um, is to have bailout areas where they can actually play around the water and don't have to do a water carry. Or if they do, it's, you know, the water carries like a creek that's 20 feet wide or something like that, that, you know, even even an eight-year-old can throw 20 feet typically. So, yeah, um, yeah as, far as, as far as OB, um, probably the course that people would know that uh, has the most OB, but it's natural OB, is the um, steady ed course that Tom Monroe and I did at the uh, International Center that has the, um, the, the lake out there, you know, along the, the property line. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I did in the design was uh, did, a, did a figure eight at the water so that three of the holes have the water on the right, three of have the water on the left to balance it out. Ideally, we want to get stakes in there. It's, <laughs> it's been quite a while. I've been asking for stakes for a while because to me, when you design OB and it's designed properly, you want it to be consistent. You know, I'm not a big fan of, you know, water that changes uh, depth, you know, so that the OB line shifts depending mm. on what day you happen to be there. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if you design, you know, the OB. Now, in our course designer uh, group, I don't know, I'd get a, give a shout out to that. Steady Ed, Tom Monroe, John David, and I created the Disc Golf Course Designers group in 1994. That's the the logo. Yeah, the opposite <laughs> see, side. I see myself here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, Disc Golf Course Designers Group. Um, in our course design standards, typically we're only looking for designing to where no more than one in 20 people of the skill level the holes designed for would potentially take an OB penalty. Okay. So you do have so, a standard. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the guideline, but that may be also the guideline that Kale ended up with by default because there were only one penalty per player per round yeah. on that course because he used the natural OB and it was easily avoidable, you know, for yeah. especially the top players. So in a way, you know, he designed, at least in that regard, following the standards in terms of not having, you know, too many penalties. But then again, the trade-off is all of a sudden power ends up becoming the you know relevant factor for being a contender. So, so, so here's I'm going to share my my hot take opinion. I personally think that OB, in a general sense, penalized for throwing a poor shot. Now, I guess that's whether the course is designed that way. So, meaning if you throw off the intended flight path, you're punished naturally. I think that's exciting, and I know that would be a preference. But in places, um, I think I think there's nothing wrong, and I know that's not what you're saying, but definitely with adding out of bounds, whether it's artificial or natural. So Maple Hill, right? So they have a rock wall. Would people consider that natural OB um, to say, hey, if I throw out of this field and over the rock wall into the woods – that runs, you know, perpendicular to the, the hole, the whole way. Is that out of bounds? Um, I think, is that natural? Some would say no. I feel like it's, I think it's natural. It's a landmark that's been there forever. Um, they run a rope down the top of it. 
I guess here's my point. Simon, and this is kind of, we can give our closing thoughts here. Simon was like, hey, lucky, unlucky, all this stuff talking about it. Like you don't get unlucky. And my thought is if you don't throw a disc close to the un the unlucky area, you don't end unlucky. It's when you're trying that risk reward. And so just to me, I feel like I appreciate a risk reward. And when people are pushing the limits of that, whether it's they go out of bounds that we've created because we want to create that option. So for instance, how would you, how would you change? And I'm not expecting you to say you would, but how would you change hole 18 at Maple Hill with that OB Island green? That's totally unnatural yet. It's been the history of the course for since its inception, as Nick said, the exciting finishes um, that plays perfectly for that hole. The audience, the players alike, and some feel like they've gotten unlucky. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that as we get ready to close out hole 18? Um, Me personally? Yeah, Chuck, like, what do you think? Do you like that or yeah. would you change it? Um, <laughs> you know, here, here's the, here, here's um, part of the issue that we're dealing with, and that is uh, pros should be paid based upon the eyeballs that they bring in their entertainment value their you know they should be paid based on their entertainment value which draws spectators which draws viewers for the sponsors that's truly the only way the money comes in other than essentially being gamblers and winning the entry fees of the other players you know which is at lower levels yeah so so when you when you uh, the, the challenge that we have is how do you make good design also interesting uh, at the same time? And so I'm, I think, you know, from a fan standpoint, 18 people love it. From a design standpoint, in terms of fairness and whatever, um, maybe not so much. Hmm. So I think that's that's really the... The deciding point is what's what's the intent true from the design Nick, is the design okay yeah no I, I i'm 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 echoing what you're saying here and nick would you be do you think that play on hole 18 would change very much if they got rid of the ob i think it would allow players to be more aggressive every time yeah you would just be more aggressive from any spot because if you're short of the wall or long of the wall you still have somewhat of a putt at the basket which so yeah, that that whole I don't know. I think it would play a lot more boring. Well, boring kind of, but it would also be interesting to see how aggressive people were. Here's here's why, and this is I guess I don't know. I'll just close out on this. I was gonna OB, say I got I think, yeah. dogs coming back, so I might get barking OB, in my background. Ob is a safety issue on hole 18. That's where the pro shop is, and they don't want people yeah. being aggressive. And that's my thought. The pro there. shot, the parking lot, and the spectators, yeah. in a sense. So it could be a course Great. design thing, but as you mentioned, Chuck, they're, they're, they utilized an amazing piece of property. They utilized every portion they had, and I think it plays out well. Um, so, do you have any closing have, closing closing yeah. words, Chuck? The course you're designing is well, is your background behind you. Uh, this is um, uh, hole number three uh, on the granite course up at Highbridge, and I guess uh, those who are PDGA members. Uh, have a nice article on the resurrection of Highbridge uh, under new ownership that they can read in the latest uh, PDJ Disc Golfer magazine. Uh, I was just up there playing in a tournament and uh, uh, am involved with uh, 
Tom Winch, mountain man, and the uh, the new uh, proprietor up there, and he's uh, you know getting new baskets up there, and we're tweaking the designs to uh, uh, update them a little bit on each of the courses, and and work around some property issues that are involved. Uh, uh, for those who have been up there, uh, the campground area. Uh, has been sold and is now being relocated on the main hill. So we're shifting some uh, holes and courses around a little bit. But uh, things have been going great. He's had great crowds up there. He's 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 pleased, you know, with this COVID thing. You know, you're going up in the middle of the North Woods, so it's uh, you know pretty safe place to go and hang out and play some disc golf. Uh, but you know, even our local courses are are packed also these days so so chuck when are you uh, when, this is the last question give me a time frame when are you going to be done designing courses <laughs> my my position right now as a head of the course designers group i'm doing more mentoring okay than anything other than nice. other than hybrid is my baby and you know i'm i'm willing to go and and uh you know, be sort of a, an ear to listen about some of the issues that designers have out there. You know, the I would like to be doing more of it, but there's, you know, because of the commercial aspects, um, you've got a lot more manufacturers making baskets than yeah. when I started with, uh, you know, DGA and then Innova in the late 90s. So now, you know, people are, you know, keeping things close to their vest with regard to design and, um you know, unfortunately, I think in some cases are not necessarily getting as good design advice as they might um, because they're using their own, you know, internal people that, uh, you know, work or rep for their particular manufacturer of baskets. But, you sure. know, that's that's just growth. That's growth in the industry. And mm -hmm. all I hope is that people, you know, pay attention to what some of us in the past that are experienced, you know, uh, have um, had successes with. I mean, a lot of us have courses that are still popular to this day. And yeah. and so there are some subtle, subtle things that we've done that may not be obvious that have made them maybe more successful than they might have been otherwise. So. so don't stop. Don't stop. You've contributed a whole bunch to this sport. We're truly appreciative of it. Nick, I'm going to tease out next week, actually. I don't know what you're going to be doing next week. That's up in the air, I'm sure. I, I, sh I should be there. Okay. Oh, you might be here back home. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lester, no, yeah I should be back home. Awesome. So that's you guys were just sat in on our our, in, our internal meeting. That's how Nick and Matt does it yeah. <laughs> live. <laughs> um, so, like, so what are we doing? All right. Yeah. No, next week, guys, teasing it out right now. Um, actually, and I'm sure, Chuck, you know this individual, John Houck. Um, we're going to have him sure. on here. So we're going to talk to him about a number of different things. Um, but we are glad to have had you on here. Nick, thanks for joining remote. This is the Nick and Matt show. So I'm glad you did it. Yeah. And um, no, it's been super awesome. I want to thank Chuck as well. And, you know, especially want to thank Hunter and his wife, Lizzie, for letting <laughs> me do this the whole time. But uh, no, I want to thank everyone who tuned in tonight. I can't I don't know any of the numbers or anything. But um, to anyone who tuned in and commented live, Matt was able to see it. I want to just say how appreciative we are of that. And then for all the podcast listeners listening later, give us a comment, ask us more questions, because I'm sure we'll have Chuck on the show again. The rating system, a lot of us will never fully understand it. It's just that's that's, that's just the just way it goes smart. with that. No, that's just how smart exactly. Chuck is and how dumb we are. Exactly. He created <laughs> bingo. And so, uh, no, just leave some comments down. And uh, again, thank you, everyone, for being on tonight. Matt, I'll let you send us out. All right, guys. Until next week.
uh, we're here in disc golf and we're going to talk about it. So thank you guys. Uh, let's talk to you guys later. Peace out. Thanks for tuning in to the Nick and Matt show. Be sure to check us out on your favorite social platform and subscribe on iTunes.